You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Carol O'Neill. I'm Deputy Director here at Trinity Longroom Hub, and you are all here as part of the festival we're running, the Arts and Humanities Festival, which is powered by our mostly brilliant uh, students as well as our permanent staff. And I just want to thank them at the outset for their amazing work this week. Uh, this session is going to feature Professor Linda Hogan. Uh, Linda is known to many of us, a uh, professor of ecumenics in the School of Religion, uh, one, I think, of the most respected and, and universally admired academics we have working in Trinity, but she won't thank me for saying it in such blunt terms. Um, so Linda's expertise lies in the field of intercultural and interreligious ethics. That's what she's built her magnificent career on. She's also known to us as somebody who served in some of the senior, most senior roles in university uh, academic management, which shows that she has this really strong commitment to, to, to Trinity and the university really as a, as a, as a body as well as just a, a fulcrum for her own research. Um, so today, Linda is going to talk to us about securing human rights in the Anthropocene and the role of religion, and I think it's going to be a real treat. So please welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Kiron, and thanks everybody for being here on such an inclement day. Uh, and also thanks to Mark for uh, a paper, I did an excellent paper, I didn't hear all of it, but I think uh, there are some alignments between Mark's perspective and what I'm hoping to do today. Sorry, I'm just finding my phone to get myself, uh, keep myself in, in time. So I've prepared a short paper as opposed to a, uh, a talk that's really just to keep me on track in terms of the argument that I want to make. Um, the title is Securing Human Rights in the Anthropocene, the Role of Religion. Many commentators claim that we've entered the end time of human rights, that the optimism of the transformative potential of the international legal order has buckled under the weight of existing and new pressures. And there's no doubt that human rights are under threat from multiple quarters. We've seen the unraveling of the post-war liberal consensus on international cooperation, the rise of exclusionary populism, and in addition, of course, there is the failure of states to address the violent paths of racism and colonialism over successive generations, all of which demonstrate the challenging global context in which human rights politics operates today. And of course, there's climate change which poses an existential threat to the planet and to the humans and other animals who inhabit it. We've come to name this period the Anthropocene, that is, the time since the Industrial Revolution when human activity has become the primary cause of permanent planetary change. And while the term Anthropocene itself orients us to the ecological impacts of human activity per se, I think a more appropriate way of thinking about this is the human-created technological, political, cultural, and socioeconomic structures and systems that simultaneously destroy the planet and impoverish communities. And it's this more expansive definition of Anthropocene that I'm using today. So disenchantment and climate anxiety abound. Yet alongside this, there's the politics of social change, much of it pursued in the idiom and through the principles of human rights. And which draw on secular and religious traditions. So my talk today arises from the conviction that notwithstanding its limitations, 
human rights frameworks continue to be an essential resource to safeguard human dignity and also ecological sustainability. First, I want to highlight some of the political dimensions of the crisis we face, noting some of the shortcomings of traditional liberal human rights discourse. Then I'll discuss the renewal of human rights politics that is intent on addressing these shortcomings and suggest that critical religion is vastly under-engaged in the process of renewal. Historically, religions have played a vital but somewhat ambivalent, have been vital but somewhat ambivalent actors in the politics of human rights, and there are good reasons why religion is often viewed with suspicion. Yet religion has played a key role in establishing the moral authority and cross-cultural resonance of human rights. And so my talk today considers the contribution of religious ethics, specifically in this case, Christian social ethics, that, and the contribution it can make to the renewal. Just a few words, though, about the crisis of human rights in the Anthropocene. We don't have time to analyze the nature of the challenges that comprise the Anthropocene today. Philip Alston's report on extreme poverty and human rights, uh, published in 2019, provides a useful summary when he says that the interconnected environmental, political, and economic crisis today undermines the enjoyment of almost every human right in the International Bill of Rights, with the burden falling on the most vulnerable. 50 years of development gains, especially in global health and poverty reduction, are being under, undone, and the political instability caused by climate-induced inequality pose serious issues um, for civil and political rights, not only for minorities and in, uh, immigrants, but also for women and LGBTQI persons <coughs> who are often particularly vulnerable to assault. Climate-induced conflicts, whether involving state actors or private corporations, also are an ongoing source of human rights violations, particularly against human rights defenders. And this dynamic reflects um, global inequality, but it also amplifies it. So not only do we see inequality between and within nations growing exponentially year on year, but many of the proposed remedies to the climate crisis fail to adequately address the negative human rights impacts that are felt by those who have contributed least. Now, some might question whether the category of human rights that is so integral to modernity and therefore so implicated in the economic and political structures that have underwritten the climate crisis are up to the ethical task of addressing it. Human rights frameworks have long been accused of being ethnocentric and colonialist, held captive to the neoliberal capitalism, it's argued that they can no longer provide the ethical resources to address our entangled crisis. But what I hope to demonstrate is that while it is true that human rights language has been deployed to give moral respectability to imperialism and therefore is implicated in the violence of colonialism, nonetheless, a transformation of human rights politics is underway spearheaded by feminist, decolonial, and subaltern scholars and activists, including religious scholars and activists, who are reforming traditional, liberal, often individualistic conceptualizations of rights by drawing on previously neglected values and traditions, including religious values and traditions. So human rights frameworks are, in a sense, being divested, divested of their moral myopia and being reimagined through an intersectional, multicultural, multi-religious, global conversation about what we owe each other. 
And in this context, I want to suggest that critical religion has much to contribute. In the first place, religion can enhance the potency and legitimacy of human rights by deploying its ideas of human flourishing and of the virtuous life, as well as its networks of religious-based activism to support rather than impede human rights. But more importantly, however, we live in an age of religious revival and of political religion. And whether we like it or not, this is the context in which human rights must be championed and secured. Because around the world, actually with the exception of Europe, religious affiliation is growing faster than population growth. The religious profile of the world is rapidly changing, driven primarily by differences in fertility rates, the size of youth populations, by those changing their religion, and by migration. We observe diverse experiences of religious pluralization, including in their decolonial expressions in many parts of the world. And in addition, we've witnessed what we call the deprivatization of religion, which has accelerated in the last five decades, the consequences of which are felt around the globe. The 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran is often noted as the first early example of this repoliticization of religion. But there are many different examples in every religious tradition. Nor have religions been passive objects in a changing landscape. Rather, they too have been part of the process of change. So the trajectory of contemporary religion can't be captured through simple categories of religiosity there and secularism here. Rather, there's a complex interplay of secularization, globalization, political religion, religious revival. And this dynamic, I suggest, is very important for human rights politics. Charles Taylor, Talal Assad, Olivier Roy, Cecile Laborde, Akhil Pilgrami, and many others highlight different aspects of this complex interplay. And my purpose here is not really to debate the nuances of the various theories of contemporary religion, but rather to emphasize that the 21st century has not only witnessed the return of religion, but has also seen its transformation. And in this context, I suggest religion should be engaged as an enabler of human rights. Otherwise, it risks becoming a serious impediment to their advancement. Yet even among scholars who are advocating new forms of collaboration, actually religion is rarely mentioned. And, the few ex and there are some exceptions. For example, in a spirited call for new collaboration, Cesar Rodriguez Garavito notes that the values and emotions of millions around the world are inspired by religious creeds, and that, that in them it's possible to find affinities with human rights. But even here, the potential of religion is vastly underestimated because it's billions, as opposed to the millions of individuals that Garavito mentions, who properly engaged have the capacity to make common cause with the politics of human rights. But of course, engaging religion is a complex matter. And as I said already, while there are significant affinities between the ethical commitments of uh, many religious traditions and those of human rights, nonetheless, religions have an ambivalent record, especially in the domain of gender-related human rights. And this is why I use the term critical religion. I use the term critical religion to highlight the constructed, contested nature of religion and to emphasize the internal critique, that internal critique and reform are central features of religious traditions. Like all moral frameworks, religions too are subject to the dynamics of change. 
although religions often present themselves as unchanging and uniform in their belief systems and moral values. But studies in comparative religious ethics confirm that there's a trajectory of change and continuity in most traditions, even if religious leaders downplay their significance. So we ignore the constructedness of religion at our peril. Uh, indeed, viewed through a historical and genealogical lens, one can see that each tradition encompasses political processes that involve choices between various interpretations of the community's history, power struggles over the authorization uh, and legitimation of community texts and traditions, debates about where the power to define the limits of tradition uh, resides, and other things. Theorist of culture, Homi Baba, argues that cultures cannot be thought of as unitary or homogenous, and so it is with religions, which are neither static nor unitary, but rather dynamic and internally diverse, and therefore can't be and shouldn't be essentialized. In fact, religious traditions have multiple mechanisms through which they can tackle their problematic legacies of misogyny, homo, transphobia, racism, etc. For more than 50 years, second wave feminism, as well as decolonial theologians, have refuted homophobic and misogynistic ideologies pursued in the name of religion, and have developed new interpretations of sacred texts, beliefs, and practices in which gender equality is to the fore, and critical hermeneutical approaches to texts and traditions open up new spaces for ethical innovation, and internal critiques catalyze reform. So in short, religions are themselves part of the ethical and ideological contestations that are evident in wider society and not apart from them. But in recent decades, as we know, many religions have been hijacked by anti-egalitarian accounts of those traditions. However, religion need not and shouldn't be abandoned to exclusionary interpretations of tradition, either by religious believers themselves nor by secular human rights advocates. Rather, those who challenge exclusionary interpretations of traditions are important allies in the struggle for human rights today. The UN Co Commission for Human Rights Faith for Rights initiative actually um, is an important initiative in this regard, and the Religious Coalition for, uh, uh, for Reproductive Choice is another example of the kinds of collaboration that I think are essential in this period of transnational political religion but we've only just scratched the surface of its potential. So religion can be an important ally in the promotion of human rights through its ethical frameworks, its, vision, its visions of the good life, and can provide vital resources for renewal. So time permits me only a very brief indication of, of how religious ethics can contribute to the renewal of human rights politics, specifically in terms of conceptual resources to address the individualism, the inequality, where there's a, an overlap with what Mark was saying today, and also the anthropocentrism of classic liberal human rights frameworks. I'm just going to talk briefly about each of those. So reorienting the individualism, this claim that human rights language is excessively individualistic is well rehearsed. The Asian values debate of the 1990s drew a sharp distinction between the Western liberal individualistic conceptualization of political life and the Asian one. And the Western communitarian philosophers too are highly critical of what they regard as liberalism's misconceived anthropology, arguing that whereas communitarianism orients us to the common good, 
liberalism mistakenly structures human life around sovereign selves, unencumbered by relationships and free from the conventions of community. Misconceived in this manner, it's argued, the unencumbered self is the philosophical basis on which the self-interested, egoistic politics of rights turns in sharp contrast to the politics of the common good. But I want to suggest that that characterization really presents a false dichotomy because it ignores how human rights philosophy is being transformed today by feminist and decolonial and post-colonial scholars, especially including religious ones. Indeed, it particularly ignores theological traditions that advance human rights in tandem with or in the context of a, an ethic of the common good. In the Christian tradition of social ethics, the language of rights and the, the language of the common good are seen as symbiotic, not in conflict. Human beings are seen as social creatures oriented towards the common good. Uh, the works of Catherine Keller, Anna Rowlands, Huilan Kopp, Agnes Brazal, Theresia Hinga, develop this framework and demonstrate that the categories of self and community are formed and reformed through discursive processes of power and that interdependence and vulnerability are as characteristic of the human as our autonomy and sovereignty. The works of these theologians, rights, uh, in the works of these theologians, rights are not merely the properties of sovereign selves, which is really the tradition we have since the 16th century in terms of the Western philosophical tradition from Locke onwards. But rather, rights become a set of complex, interrelated claims through which the common good is realized. Moreover, these interrelated claims include the basic goods required for security, subsistence, liberty, and participation, all four. That is, in uh, Henry Hsu's words, moral minima of respect presumed in any reasonable conception of flourishing. <coughs> Challenging the inequality. This focus on moral minima presumed in any reasonable conceptualization of flourishing brings us face to face with another of the criticisms of contemporary human rights politics, namely its failure to address the issue of economic justice and to curb the excesses of market fundamentalism, which has left the world more equal than ever before. In his classic book, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, Sam Moyne notes that even while the normative commitments to equal dignity and rights were being formally adopted by governments around the world, the economic policies that would support the realization of social and economic rights were being discarded and overridden. Conor Geerty also argues that the role of human rights in the neoliberal shift <coughs> has been disturbing. He says that the rights that have advanced over the decades since 1989 have tended to be those rights most amenable to the neoliberal point of view, that is, rights that do not involve interferences with individual property rights or large amounts of public expenditure on education and healthcare, etc. The fundamental failing of the post-war human rights-oriented order, it's argued, is that while it may have left the globe more humane in terms of a formal commitment to equality, uh, it, is also, it has also left the world enduringly unequal. And although there have been, of course, successes, for example, in ex addressing extreme poverty and maternal mortality, as well as advancing specific rights like the right to primary school education, I don't want to diminish the fact that there have been 
um, uh, uh, successes. Moyne and Geerty, I think, are correct that human rights values have been eroded by market fundamentalism. But I would want to argue that rather than rendering human rights redundant, neoliberal economic globalization reinforces the need or the importance of a comprehensive vision of human rights premised on their indivisibility and interdependence. That is the recognition that civil, political, and economic, social, and cultural rights are inherently complementary and equal in importance and the violation of one damages the achievement of others. Here again, I think, religious social ethics provides a counterweight to neoliberal interpretations of rights, particularly in the way in which it anchors the inalienability of human rights in the dignity of the person oriented to the common good. Moreover, the virtue of justice is regarded as fundamental to the common good, and its role is to establish the standards for the equitable distribution of goods. And the requirements of justice are established through principles of solidarity, participation, equity, and subsidiarity, which are meant to give meaning to this idea of the common good. The, in addition, this idea of the common good is meant to be instantiated in each context of life. So the common good cannot be conceptualized in narrow, ethnocentric, nationalistic, or sectarian terms which many strands of religious populism seeks to, seek to do today, nor can it be realized through economic models that ignore distributive justice. Similarly with the concept of the universal destination of goods, in fact I was talking about this in class just today, um, historically the Christian tradition's understanding of the economic requirements of justice have tended to steer a mid-course between the universal destination of goods, which means that the goods of the earth are destined to belong to, the, to every person. Um, so it's tended to steer a mid-course between that on the one hand and the right to private property on the other. But the right to private property was always highly constrained by the requirements of the common good. And uh, as Mark mentioned earlier, this strand of the tradition really has acquired greater prominence during the papacy of Pope Francis, who really has argued that inequality is as serious an issue as is poverty. Um, and it's further developed by many um, uh, post-colonial, particularly, uh, and liberation theologians who challenge libertarian accounts of human rights and draw on the resources discussed and others um, to uh, contribute to the renewal of human rights so that it can become a more durable vehicle for advancing human right, human flourishing. Then finally, challenging the anthropocentrism, which is a bit more complex, because the focus on human flourishing draws our attention in a way to the final criticism of human rights, which is its anthropocentrism, and leads me and many to ask whether the speciesism of human rights make it, makes it part of the problem. Now we know that many of the world's philosophical and religious worldviews are marked by a fundamental anthropocentrism that implicates them to varying degrees in the climate crisis. One thinks, for example, of Lynn White's iconic critique of Christianity's role in the instrumentalization of nature, which was written in 1967. Those who insist that we need to abandon anthropocentrism range from utilitarian philosophers like Peter Singer, who argues that speciesism is a form of injustice equivalent to racism and sexism. It includes the zoopolis of Donaldson and Kimlicka, 
who develop a concept of political justice based on fair cooperation between humans and other animals. The deep ecology of Iron Ness that rejects all forms of hierarchy within the cosmos of living beings. Now, ethical prescriptions to remedy anthropocentrism vary widely too. They include Singer's principle of equality that requires suffering to be counted equally without reference to any particular species the interspecies justice advocated by Martha Nussbaum, the rights of nature approach of David Boyd, who argues that just as laws recognizing the sentience of animals represents a breakthrough with respect to the rights of individual animals, that is, particularly for humane treatment, etc. Similarly, he argues recognizing the intrinsic value of biodiversity is a breakthrough for the rights of species, all species. Now, this isn't the time to debate the merits of these different perspectives, but you can see that this approach radically decenters the human and therefore challenges the legitimacy of any moral framework that would foreground the human and human rights. But I would want to suggest that it is possible to maintain a commitment to human rights without, on the one hand, instrumentalizing and destroying nature, and on the other hand, making human rights merely one internal specification of the wider matrix of the rights of nature. And of course, the Christian tradition too has long wrestled with this question of how the unique status of human beings is to be understood in the context of creation, which is a, obviously a religious term, but you know, nature. Um, Again, the pioneering work of uh, eco-feminist theologians have shown that there are possibilities to develop an ecological ethic based on a holistic multi-species framework, and these are currently underway. But for me at least, I think that our current condition requires an ethic that both values and protects nature, and also that recognizes the distinctiveness of humans among other animals. And from the Christian ethical tradition, I think one can speak of the unavoidable anthropocentrism of responsibility, which provides an important orienting principle, I think. Human beings, and we alone, in a way, live under this spell of responsibility. And I think this justifies the recognition of the distinctiveness of human dignity. Moreover, because humans can share this responsibility only with other humans, I think this provides the basis for a specifically human form of solidarity um, facilitated by human rights. This spell of responsibility, of course, stretches far beyond human beings and extends to animals, plants, and the whole biosphere. So by configuring the anthropocentrism of human rights as an anthropocentrism of responsibility that extends not only to humans but to other animals and the natural world, I think that human rights can lead an ethical response that's required to address the climate change, climate crisis. There's a lot to be said about how this understanding of human responsibility has the capacity to anchor an ethic that's shaped by a reverence for life, and also that recognizes the distinctiveness of human dignity and rights. And that's actually one of the pieces of work that I'm uh, doing at the moment. But Hans Joas, I think, correctly argues that the last two centuries of human rights has essentially been a story about the sacralization of the person. And I want to suggest that the next decades will require a radical reconceptualization of the remit of human responsibility 
and also of the nature of the common good, so as to broaden its remit. But these are obviously matters for another day. So as I just end, I hope I have demonstrated the important role that religious ethics plays and can play in renewing human rights for the Anthropocene. One crucial area that where religious traditions are seriously compromised, of course, is in relation to their gendered blind spot. And much official religious ethics across different religious traditions continues to advance essentialist binary views of gender and also heteronormative views of sexuality. And while there's not an opportunity to discuss this today, um, it is something that is, I think, fundamental to the way in which uh, human rights can be, um, uh, can be secured in the Anthropocene. Uh, and I've done quite a bit of work on this issue in my time. But I think it is important to mention here, too, that there is significant diversity within religious traditions, and many who, and many who challenge traditional binary heteronormative understandings of gender and sexuality. And the discussion I had earlier about the nature of critical religion and how that has evolved is really one of the centerpieces of that has been the contestations associated with uh, gender and gender identity. So notwithstanding its limitations, I think uh, human rights discourse continues to be an essential resource to safeguard human dignity and eco ecological sustainability. Um, and uh, I think has a distinctive contribution to make to the ongoing renewal. I regard human rights discourse as not a set of abstract universal principles, but rather a living tradition that involves that evolves in a reiterative process as our understandings of the contours of dignity develop. And this reiterative process evolves through an inclusive, intersectional, interreligious, global conversation about how uh, what we owe each other. And so. Uh, this um, way of thinking about the possibilities of human rights is very much connected with this non-foundationalist, non evolving concept of human rights that I have um, with other colleagues uh, uh, been involved in developing over uh, many years. So reimagined in this way, I think, human rights can provide a uniquely appropriate moral language for a pluralist world through which the politics of human flourishing, social justice, and ecological sustainability can be advanced.